Jules was done in the way he was to make an example. He was not shot like Ed Lazar by a professional. He was not taken out in the desert and left as a professional might do, or even a bungler. The manner in which Don was disposed of and murdered was done to stick it in the community space. And I want those people that ordered it done. You can always get a punk to do your work for you. I'm tired of the punks. I want the guy that walked in and said, I want Don Bowles murdered. Here's X amount of dollars to do it. He is the guy that's always remained clean and behind the scenes. And I'd love to have that guy. And I'm going to do everything in my efforts to get that guy before I leave this office. Two potentially innocent men, Max Dunlap and Jimmy Robeson, have been arrested for the murder of Don Bowles in 1977 and they were placed on death row. Almost the entirety of the state's case rested on the word of John Adamson, who, let's just say, had every reason to tell law enforcement a story. His story would keep him from the gas chamber, whether he was telling the truth or not. Not only was Adamson a questionable star witness, but the state's theory in general had a dubious foundation. As Jana Bombersbach explains. There are four things you need to understand about the Don Bowles case. Number one, the state's theory is totally wrong. Number two, um, the police sabotaged their own investigation into this murder. Number three, two innocent people went to prison. Max Dunlap died there. And number four, this case has never been solved. So if that's the framework you start off with, then you've got a good play, way to move forward. The state's theory is ridiculous because it's based on a lie. The state's theory is that Don Bowles was killed because he had written a story a while back about Kemper Marley that cost Kemper Marley his job on the Racing Commission. And that this ticked off Kemper Marley, who asked his friend, Max Dunlap, who was like a son to him, to organize a thing and get somebody to kill Don Bowles. And that Max Dunlap somehow knew John Adamson, probably through Neil Roberts. Adamson got this Jimmy the Plumber, they called him Jimmy the Plumber, or uh, Robeson, mm -hmm. to be the bomber, right? This is, their, this is their theory. And it's called the Marley Theory. And it was fed to them by Neil Roberts in the most ridiculous plea deal ever negotiated in the history of jurisprudence. Without uttering a word, they gave him immunity from everything for them, him to give them a theory. Boy, would I like that deal if I ever get in trouble, right? I mean, it was absolutely mind-boggling bad, bad work, right? The notion that Max would have arranged Bull's death because of an article he, Bowles had written about Kemper in February. Yeah, it might have irritated Max, but you know, I can't think of any situation in my life that I've ever looked at where somebody was killed four months later for writing a bad article right. about somebody else and that didn't make any difference in that. You know, as, as a motive, it never really made any sense. So the basic idea that he caused this great harm to Marley is wrong, okay? That's, that's the first thing you got to know. So when, you, so when your basic, basic foundation of your house, you know, is made out of uh, tissue paper rather than cement, yeah. then the whole thing comes crumbling down. In 1977, famed investigator Lake Headley was brought to Arizona, hired 
by a committee of more than 300 Phoenicians who believed Max Dunlap was innocent. He would recruit our own Don Devereaux to assist in his investigation. Devereaux, who at the time believed the police had arrested the correct men for Bowles' killing, would quickly discover a number of troubling leads. I first met Lake after I went to work for the Progress in 79. And that spring, he was already over here beginning to work for the Dunlap Defense Committee. And one of the things he had done, as he had begun to go through, as I was doing, I had the discovery that it had been hidden for a mm-hmm. long time and not released by the judge. It was probably, may or may not be exculpatory that Murray Miller had access to. And Lake had found in going through that some stuff that I hadn't even found yet. He had found that Neil Roberts reported three stolen vehicles from his parking lot on the day Bullis was killed. One of the main pieces of evidence used to convict Max Dunlap was the cash drop from Dunlap to Adamson for his legal defense. Dunlap had claimed a man had visited him early that morning with a bag of cash to be delivered for Neil Roberts, which the state disputed. However, Don Devereaux discovered a stunning piece of information. Remember, Max Dunlap was under police surveillance during this time. Early in the morning of the 12th, when Max got up early, because he got up early in the summer to do his work, uh, there was a guy waiting for him in the driveway outside of his house with a bag of money, about 5,800 bucks, as I recall, in cash. And he told Max that uh, Neil Roberts wanted to get this money to Tom Foster, who was Adamson's lawyer, but Neil was under too much surveillance at the time to do anything. Would, Would Max please make that delivery? And Max ultimately did. And when he got to Foster's office, Foster wasn't there. Secretary said he was out of state or something. And uh, Max found that John Adamson was there waiting for him. And Adamson took the body, took the bag. And unbeknownst to Mr. Dunlap at the time, uh, the cops were supposed to be witnessing this because they were following both Adamson and Dunlap. And the cops blew both surveillances. This was a setup to basically uh, allow the cops to watch it. John Adamson get a payment from Max Dunlap, and the cop blew both of the surveillances. And John got away from him, and Dunlap got away from him. They didn't find out about this until Dunlap told them uh, in, a, in an interview later on about having taken money to, what he thought, for legal stuff. There were multiple witnesses to the money drop, which the cops claimed never happened. Marley Fogelsong, who was a neighbor, saw this exchange in the driveway. Uh, Max's daughter, Karen, who I just had drinks with recently, told me something I'd never heard before. She didn't see the guy, but she heard the conversation going on in the driveway early in the morning, stuck her head out the window or the door or something, and didn't see the guy but saw his car backing out of the driveway. So she saw somebody leaving. And there was, at that time, a Phoenix police car across the street doing surveillance. So they would have witnessed the money drop. So the money drop that the cops claimed later never happened was actually witnessed by a police officer. And all those surveillance records were later destroyed when I tried to get my hands on them through the Scottsdale Progress. I made a formal public records request, and I was told by the police department that they had needed space on some shelf. And uh, they, for, for better or worse, had destroyed the surveillance records. This is in an open homicide case. Uh, and so I think the reason they destroyed them is that the money drop would have been witnessed. And it would have corroborated Mr. Dunlap's version mm-hmm. of events. And, and uh, you know, proved that the money drop really did happen. 
which no longer would put it in the in the uh, corroboration of accomplice testimony category. And I tracked down the cop who witnessed it in California later. He, he fled the state. He was so frightened about what he'd seen. And he wouldn't tell me exactly what he had seen. He told me he saw something that <laughs> could have got him in a lot of trouble with the department. And he described Dunlap's circular driveway and, and everything else. And, and uh, obviously he got... He got persuaded by another cop that the information that he knew would so aggravate the police department and their case against Mr. Dunlap that he could be in some kind of physical jeopardy uh, if he told that story. And he got so scared for his personal safety at that time. This was a violent town back in those That one weekend, soon thereafter, he packed his family up and moved to the state of Washington. Just left for the Seattle area. Without even telling the department, he just left. And uh, he later moved to Southern California. Uh, because he was a Mormon fellow, I was able to track him through the stake in San Diego, in the Seattle area where he had lived. They knew where he had gone. They gave me a forwarding address. And I tracked him down in Southern California in the Los Angeles area and talked to him over the phone. And he told me some of what I just told you, nervously. Uh, he's seen something that you know, could cause him all kinds of trouble and had decided to pack up, pack up his family and leave. That afternoon, after I talked to him, I got a, a threatening phone call from the Phoenix Police Department from a sergeant I didn't know who told me that he also was Mormon and that this uh, detective who had left had a lot of friends who were Mormon in the department and that if I caused this guy any trouble, I would regret it. I took that as a kind of threat. And that night, about... Two o'clock in the morning, there was a police car in front of my townhouse in West Phoenix shining its spotlight through my bedroom window. My bedroom lit up, boom, like, a, <laughs> like I had a fair going on in mm-hmm. there. And they were reminding me that not only because <laughs> they caused me trouble, but they letting me know that they knew where I lived. Mm-hmm. This, was a, this was a follow-up to the phone conversation I'd had. The Arizona Supreme Court would overturn the convictions of Dunlap and Robeson in 1980, in a unanimous decision, as Don Devereaux explains. One of the reasons that he was that, that the convictions were overturned was the fact that the judge allowed Adamson to take the Fifth Amendment when he was on, on the stand. You can't enter in a plea deal in a case like that and then plead the Fifth. <laughs> you know, you, you just can't do that. And that's Law School 101. And, and Schaefer, you know, let that happen. Um, there were any number of mistakes made in that trial that were reversible. And I have, and what, what I was working on, which also contributed, although it wasn't part of the official reason, what I had discovered before the conviction was overturned was hundreds and hundreds of pages of withheld exculpatory evidence. And on that issue, it would have been overturned. Among the exculpatory evidence was the statement of James McVeigh a fellow inmate and friend of Adamson's in the Maricopa County Jail. He stated that Adamson had told him he was going to frame Max Dunlap as part of a scenario his people found acceptable. When McVeigh asked him why he wouldn't just tell the truth, Adamson uttered the infamous line, my people don't give immunity. Adamson was the only one making references to Dunlap's innocence. Molly Ivins, the legendary reporter for the New York Times, had convinced Neil Roberts to sit down for an off-the-record conversation. 
Molly, you know, Molly was, I don't know if any, if you, any of you know about Molly Ivins. I mean, she was, you know, she was the kick-ass, absolute kick-ass Texas girl, a big boned, um, smart as hell. You know, she was on television for a while and she was with the Texas Observer for many, many years and was a great writer. Ivins, so unnerved by the conversation, immediately retreated to her car so she could record a statement of what Roberts had told her. She ultimately went to the Arizona Attorney General's office to give them this information with her notes and a tape. It seems as if this information or clues or whatever it is all of these journalists dig up went to the Attorney General's office. And to this day, it's sort of troubling that the Attorney General's office has done absolutely nothing. Molly Ivins would agree to be deposed regarding her conversation with Neil Roberts. Here's a portion of that deposition. We met at a place called Trulick's Restaurant. When I talked to him, he seemed to think that there was some chance that uh, the whole thing was the, the story he had told on the stand at uh, Adamson's trial. Uh, which is basically that this old man, Kemper Marley, had arranged through Dunlap to have Bowles killed, uh, was going to come unglued. And he was spinning out scenarios of what else might have happened. And I think he had three or four of them, and it seemed to me that he was a man of very fertile imagination who was making up one story after another uh, to see if he could get it all to fit in case the Kemper uh, uh, Molly theory fell apart, in case the state came back and tried to prosecute him. And he was delivering these theories to you at this luncheon? Yes. What he told me on the record was, uh, on the record for the New York Times, uh, he said he had never paid any money to anyone. Okay. Um, what he told me off the record was, uh, if there's anyone innocent in this case, it's Max Dunlap. And my recollection is that he was even stronger about it than that. Uh, just basically that Max was this poor schlemiel who had been set up on this. And I sense, as near as I can tell from looking at this case, uh, it was Neil Roberts who set him up. Um, and seemed to be a legitimate claim. And did he ever, besides the strong statement that... Uh, Max Dunlop had nothing to do with the murder. Did he offer any factual basis for that? He would explain how Dunlap might have been set up to look like, um, uh, to take the fall for somebody else. And it was, again, what uh, the exact words that I dictated in the tape recorder immediately after the interview, which are probably more accurate than my recollections now, or that if there is anybody innocent in this whole case, it is Max Dunlap. Um, so it was put hypothetically. But it seemed to me, again, my recollection from other things he said, again, would indicate that, that he that Dunlap was innocent. Any other recollections or, or observations? On um, I remember thinking, um, after I talked to Neil Roberts, that he was involved in the Don Bowles killing up to his neck. and. I, I could not understand how he just was allowed to walk out of it. There were a couple of other points that may be of interest. Um, 
One of the detectives who had originally investigated the Bowles killing was a man named John Sellers. I believe that's John without an H, S-E-L-L-A-R-S or E-R-S. I can no longer remember. And Neil Roberts said that he had spent a long time, uh, a great deal of time, talking to John Sellers about the case, that the two of them had been out drinking, that they had discussed maybe it was this, maybe it was that, maybe it was the other. It seemed to me that he had been through the same process he went through with me of spinning these theories about the case uh, with Detective Sellers. He also impeached, interestingly enough, the credibility of Adamson. Um, uh, Adamson's testimony, I was very familiar with Adamson's testimony uh, from the trial, and I brought up several times things that Adamson had said under oath, and Neil Roberts dismissed this as though how could anybody possibly believe this guy? Uh, the actual claim was uh, if he had been old enough, he would have confessed to setting the Chicago fire. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. As the case twisted in the wind, Don Devereaux continued his investigations. Meanwhile, in 1986, Jana and a team of three other journalists, Michael Lacey, Deborah Block, and Paul Rubin, would spend close to a year conducting their own investigation for the New Times special report, Arizona Shame. The four journalists studied court documents and conducted hundreds of hours of interviews in order to compile a stack of information to write this special report. It included information proving why the state's theory was wrong, as well as what the police did to cover up any other theories. I'm absolutely convinced that Max was innocent. And I, and I, you know, and I don't think Jimmy had anything to do with it either. I think Jimmy was just another guy who got sucked into this thing. I spent a lot of time with Max uh, back when I could get into the prison which I later got banished from, but this, this was after the first conviction, not the second. And uh, my first meetings with Max were in the joint. And then later on in the 13 years he was loose, I spent a fair amount of time with the guy. And uh, he was, I, Max never, I was never, I wouldn't consider myself a friend of Max. I would consider myself a good acquaintance. There was lots about Max that I didn't find particularly likable. I didn't find him very bright. Um, he wasn't all that interesting to talk to, but I never found any indication in any of my conversations, no slip of any kind that ever suggested that he had anything to do with this at all. And it seemed so completely out of character and so completely lacking a, a righteous motive. <clears throat> there was just no doubt in my mind after spending time with this guy that that, that just doesn't work. So I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced Max had nothing to do with it. And, and it was just somebody set up to, to deal with it. Over the years, others would come forward with information, including Eileen Roberts, who worked as Neil Roberts' secretary in Phoenix at the time of Bowles' killing. Although not related to Neil, she did work for him at his law firm, and they maintained a friendship until his death. Out of respect and allegiance to her former boss, 
she kept various statements to herself until after his passing. Eileen Roberts was uh, the secretary, and um, and she was very disturbed by all this. She was not involved in this in any way whatsoever. I mean, she just worked for the guy. But she, but you know, Neil became a, a horrible alcohol drunk and became very ill. And she helped nurse him at the end. You know, she would actually took help take care of him um, out of the goodness of her heart. And she was always upset that what she had heard over overheard. Um, was was enough information that the police should be moving on it and should be knowing what was going on. Um, so she's the one who gives a lot of insight into what was going on in the office that on Virginia, um, the days those days and and it always disturbed her. I mean, I think she wanted, I think she expected the police to take her seriously and they never did. You know, they treated her like sort of like. You know, I, I, I've always said that when a woman is besting a man, he always accuses her of being a whore, you know? So they kind of treated her like she was probably a floozy or something, you know? And so they tried to d discount her and, and, and to knock her down, you know, so that she couldn't, didn't have credentials. And none of that was true. I mean, she was just a working girl who, you know, who, who knew a lot of stuff and wanted to share that stuff and wanted the, this thing found. And, and indeed thought that her boss was, because of what she'd heard, yeah. you know, she'd overheard some conversations. She overheard. I think it was. I think she was the Goldwater source. Um, so she, I, I felt, I felt very bad for her that yeah. she had never been. That they tried to sully her yeah. when she was um, uh, when she was just trying to help. As Robert's career and health deteriorated in the late 1990s, he moved in with his former assistant Eileen Roberts at her Phoenix apartment. During their conversations. Neil Roberts finally admitted his role in the murder of Don Bowles. My name is Elaine Roberts. Since 1976, June the 2nd, I have been heavily involved and implicated in the Don Bowles murder. During the years that I've worked for Neil Roberts, I have concluded that he was probably the most evil, vicious, drunk that I ever met. When I first went to work for him, he had told me that I would meet some pretty bizarre types. He said, I've got a lot of mafia friends. Adamson had called and said he was God, wanted to speak to Neil. And um, after two or three phone calls, I said to him, what does this man do for a living? And he said, well, He's involved in several things. He works with Emprise. Uh, he's very involved in Greyhound racing and that kind of work. I said to him one afternoon, he was in a very affable mood, which he really was rarely in an affable mood. I sat on the bed one day and I said, Neil, you know, I can't understand with the practice and the homes you had and everything that was going on in your life and where you are now, how did you get tied up in this? He said, well, I was approached by people. We had to get rid of Don Bowles. He was a very dangerous man. He said, I don't know who he would start writing stories about next. Maybe me, maybe my friends, maybe who knows what. But we weren't going to give him the chance. So I said, well, all this planning and organization Let's put it this way, where were you on the totem pole? He said, where the F do you think I was? 
where I always was. I was the top man. I was on top of the totem pole. I said, you never asked me once to phone Max Dunlap for you. Why? Who was Max Dunlap in your life? And he said the same thing he had always been. He was a patsy. He was always a patsy. I don't know why he had this vengeful attitude towards Max Dunlap. Because there was no friendship. Max was not in his life at all. But, see, and Neil was very cunning. He could pass the buck to just about anyone he wanted to. And unfortunately, it was Max Dunlap. It was an interview conducted by Jana during her 1986 investigation that turned the state's theory on its head, however. She and fellow journalist Paul Rubin had gone to visit John Adamson, who was back on death row after his cooperation agreement with the state had been torn up. I'll let her pick up the story from there. 1986, when we were doing a huge investigation for the New Times, um, and we sat there and we talked, and he was very, oh God, he was so friendly, and I remember Remember, Paul kept looking at me and, you know, thinking, well, I think he's flirting with you. And it's like, oh, God, don't even flirt with me. You know, don't do this, you know, because it was just, ooh, it was so odious, right? And then we, but we're asking him questions and we're playing along and we're being nice like you are when you do an interview. You don't sit there and say, you son of a bitch, you know, you sit there and say, hey, guy, how you doing? You know, how's how's prison? What's the food like? You know, I mean, you try to make them feel comfortable with you so that they'll, they'll give, right? And so we say, you know, what about the state's theory that, that, that he says, I, I didn't kill Don Bowles for something he already wrote. I killed Don Bowles to stop him from writing a story. And I remember that, even when I say it now, my stomach kind of does this flip. And I remember I was sitting down and Paul was standing up because we only had two chairs and Adamson's on the other one. And I remember that I was so shocked that I had to stand up and turn away because I didn't want him to see how shocked I was. And I thought I was going to throw up. I mean, my stomach just went a total flip. Like, I've now heard the guy who was admitted to killing my friend say that he was killing him for a story he didn't write. What is that story? And so I said, what is, when I finally got myself back together, Paul was calm as a cucumber, thank God, because that's the kind of guy he is, you know? And I came back to it. I said, so what was that story? He said, I don't know. He said, but he was going to go to San Diego for something, and they had to, they had to hurry up because I had to kill him before he could go to San Diego. So what was the story that Don Bowles wasn't allowed to write? And for the final time, what really happened when it comes to the events of June 2nd, 1976? 